I log on in the morning, don't have to see the in-laws till later in the day. And holy crap, now I have an account with an $11,000 balance cut in half and a $21,000 maintenance requirement, which means I'm $10,000 short. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. So join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Edward Macquarie. Edward, are you ready to join the mission? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm been excited to have you on and I want to just introduce you briefly to the audience. Edward Macquarie is a professor emeritus at Santa Clara University. He writes on market history and personal finance and his research has been mentioned in columns in the Wall Street Journal, Market Watch and Barron's. His papers can be downloaded from SSRN.com and he posts as MCQ at Bogleheads.org where you can view some of the charts mentioned today. Edward, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you're bringing to this wonderful world. All righty. Well, for our podcast today, Andrew, the unique value is I'm going to tell a story such as you normally elicit. But then at the second half, with your prompting, I'll be talking about why 2022 was the worst investment mistake ever if you owned any kind of bonds. Okay. Mm. So back to you, Andrew. Yeah, so maybe uh, we'll get started by just getting into your worst investment ever. And like I always say, is that we never go into our worst investment thinking it will be. So maybe you can take us through the circumstances and what happened. All right. So first, uh, a question. Uh, have you done puts and calls trading, options trading here on the podcast so far? Will Will listeners be familiar? I mean, okay. listeners will be familiar, but we haven't gone through any major ones. So just keep it as simple as possible, Professor. <laughs> All righty. Well, always difficult for me. But uh, so, you know, basically years ago, in order to keep my hands off the big money in my 401k account, I gave myself a small play account. And in that play account, which I opened with a broker, I began to trade options. And more particularly, I began to sell naked puts. Now, again, briefly. Sounds sexy. Uh, if, if you sell a naked put, you are obligating yourself for a small premium to buy the stock at that price, no matter how far it falls in between the time you bought. Now, the good thing about naked puts is your loss can be total, but it is limited. Stocks can't go below zero, okay? And that's the most you can use. And one of the takeaways from today's podcast will be, you may, may want to trade naked puts as I did, but you should never, ever trade naked calls. Imagine selling a call on Tesla just before it went up, because mm. there is no limit to how far a stock can go up. GameStop, AMC, et cetera. All right. So here's the story. 
I hope some of your listeners go back to the great financial crisis of 2007, 2009. I've been trading puts and calls for four or five years at that point. And it is November 2008. Lehman Brothers has already gone bust. The market's going down and it's going down. So that's a good time to sell a naked put, or so I thought, because I mean, how much further is it going to go down? All right. So it's November. I'm on vacation with the family back east somewhere. I live in California. And, you know, and fortunately, the hotel has a web connection, a Wi-Fi connection. When I left California, I think I had $21,000 in the account and my maintenance requirement was only 11000 So, you know, I could withstand some losses and not have a margin call, which is when your broker says, give me more money or I shoot your investments. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, well, go ahead. No, I was just saying poof. <laughs> exactly. That's what happens. So anyway, here it is. I log on in the morning. Don't have to see the in-laws till later in the day. And holy crap. Now I have an account with an $11,000 balance cut in half and a $21,000 maintenance requirement, which means I'm $10,000 short. And well, that was my worst investment ever. What I did was I said, okay, take a deep breath. You can fix this, okay? Start to close your positions. Take the loss. And the way some of these maintenance requirements work, you're better off to just take the loss and then the maintenance requirement is not so high. Mm -hmm. So after 30 minutes of frenzied position covering, I think I only had a margin call of about $2,000. So I fired up the home equity line, transferred the equity line into my checking account, transferred the checking account into my brokerage account, and survived to trade another day. Okay. So, Andrew, that is my worst investment ever. Uh, and how would you summarize? I mean, you've already told us about, you know, avoiding, for instance, you said never sell naked calls. What other lessons did you learn from that? Well, first of all, keep your play money small. Okay. Mm. Many listeners will know Burton Malkiel, one of the index fund inventors, board member at Vanguard for many years, was interviewed in Barron's a couple of weeks ago and indicated that he liked to pick individual stocks because he does it with this tiny, tiny amount of his total portfolio. And he said, hey, look, anybody who follows the markets all their life has a gambling instinct. Mm. So control it. Keep your play money small. So that's implication number one. Because, you know, if I had been wiped out, if the whole 21,000 had been gone, it was like, well, that was 21,000 out of a, you know, a million plus. Okay, I can, I can withstand that. Yeah. So lesson number two, you know, Always have a lifeline, okay? If I didn't have a home equity line with spare capacity, I could just tap for a few thousand dollars. And, you know, then, you know, they might have sold out the entire account and said, you owe us 500 bucks instead of leaving me with the five, 10,000, whatever I had left. So lesson number two, if you're going to gamble, well, Andrew, I don't know if you ever played kitchen table poker when you were young. 
When I was young, that was called nickel-dime quarter poker, okay? It's inflated since, of course. (laughs) But, you know, I started in college, a bunch of buddies. I never went to Las Vegas. It was just nickel-dime quarter poker. But even there, the key thing was only bring $30 in your pocket. (laughs) Don't bring any more, okay? And so that's what I mean by having the equity line, the lifeline, a little spare money in case you totally screw it up. It's great. Maybe I'll just share a couple of quick things. I mean, I think it's a great lesson. And I was thinking about, you know, I have my five nieces who I helped them start investing when they were 18. And I gave them each $3,000 and I set up a Vanguard account and helped them set that up in their name. And then they got them started in like the Vanguard VT fund. And I felt like just own every stock in the world and just follow your uncle and put money in every single month and don't worry about it. They don't know anything about the market and they're not that interested. And I said, and the cool thing is when you go out to parties, unlike Burton, where he was saying that, you know, he has this, you know, his little picks that he's made, you can go out to a party and someone talks about a stock and you can just say, I own that. Also, <laughs> that's a good line. I yeah. like that. And then you're like, I, I own that. And then someone else talking, yeah, but I'm, 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 I'm investing in this turnaround in Taiwan. And it's really cool. Oh, I own that one too. And because you own every stock in the world, I think the VT funds up to 9,300 stocks. You own every single stock. And so, you know, enjoy the fact that you own all of these. And the other thing that I like to say too about that is that you know, you have you have 9,327 CEOs and 9,327 management teams working their butts off to overcome inflation and everything else. So I think that those those types of investments are, you know, fantastic. And also, you know, I think the other lesson, and this I'll apply in Thailand, when I moved to Thailand in 92, in 95, we started a coffee roasting factory while I was the head of research at a sell-side broker. And my best friend was running that business. But we had one thing really clear. We were two Ohio boys who knew we were never going to get money from anybody, particularly a Thai bank as a startup and not Thai. And we don't have any assets. We have nothing. We knew from the beginning that we had to self-finance any catastrophe we faced. And therefore, it set a mentality that I always had to have backup to to survive. And now we're 30 years in now, and we've just survived 80% fall in revenue for two years and maintain our management team and most of our employees in our business. And we did get, you know, some help from, you know, good suppliers and good customers and also a little bit from the banks. But mainly, we knew that ultimately, we have to take care of ourselves. And I think that's the thing that you mentioned about have a lifeline, which I, you know, really, really love that preparation. So anything you would add to that before we go on to bonds? No, no, I think uh, you've got it exactly right. Uh, You you know, so many small businesses fail and you're to be complimented simply because you uh, you didn't play like one of the Internet companies. Go big or get destroyed. You stayed small and were never destroyed. As my business partner says, he says, you know, there's just some rounds where you just, your whole objective is not to get knocked out. And he said that, he said, and right now I'm in round 347. (laughs) (laughs) And if your listeners know anything about gambler's ruin, most gamblers never make it to round 347. Exactly. All right. Talk to us about bonds in 2022. Okay. 
So the short answer, Andrew, is that 2022 was the worst year ever to be a bond investor. Okay. Now, you know, whenever someone tells you, quote, worst ever, unless they're talking about personal investment mistakes, okay? Anytime some historian says, or you read in the Wall Street Journal that year X or stock Y was the worst ever, all your yellow lights should come on, okay? You could say, really, worst ever? Why don't you tell me the hedges uh, so I know what we're dealing with here? And when I say worst ever, there are two hedges. I'm only talking the safest government bonds. Mm. Okay. So in other words, you know, if you want to say worst ever and you don't put that hedge in, the worst ever is always either Weimar Germany and the hyperinflation and bonds went to trillions of a penny on the dollar, or it's 1917 in Russia and they took your bond, shot you, and that was that. Okay. So you need that hedge. 2022 was the worst bond market ever for the individual who thought they were not going to make a mistake because they put their money in the safest government bond out there. Okay. And so again, there's charts at boglehead.org. I'm just going to give you the summary here. Mm. No webinar, no PowerPoints. I'll no problem. That. Basically, when you say bonds, you mean one of three things. You might mean the total bond fund, which is the U.S. equivalent of that total world stock fund that you just mm-hmm. described. It owns everything, okay? Treasuries, corporates, everything that's investment grade, one-year maturity on out to 30, 40, whatever. 2022 was the worst year ever in the 50-year history of that instrument. And it wasn't even close. Okay. So the second thing you might mean when you say safe as bonds is you might say, "Eh, total bonds, you know, got all those long bonds in there. I don't know. So you go, I know, intermediate treasuries, Mm. not too much duration risk. You know, they're going to pay you back in five, six, seven years, full faith and credit of the United States, none of those downgradable corporate bonds. 2022 was the worst year ever for the intermediate treasury owner. And the statistics there go back to 1926. Okay. The other thing you might mean when you say the safest government bond is you might mean a 30-year United States treasury. Okay. 30 years guaranteed payments from the full faith and credit of the world hegemon. Okay. 2022 was the worst year for long government bonds since 1792, okay? But wait, I've got even more data than that, okay? Some of it, particularly over in Thailand there, some of your listeners will be familiar with the British console. Dates back to 1753. It was a perpetuity, okay? So no maturation date. Here's the coupon. We'll pay it to you for as long as the United Kingdom government is here on this planet. So this is the ultimate long-term safe government bond. And the parallel here, Vanguard has a fund called the Extended Duration Treasury Fund. It's It's got almost as much duration as a perpetuity like the consoles. If you owned that Extended Duration Treasury Bond Fund in 2022, you had the worst year in 250 years 
the safe government bonds have been out there. It really was that bad. Now, I'm going to stop there and pause a little bit, Andrew, see if you have some questions for me. If we have time, I'll explain to the listeners why buying a safe government bond in January 2022 was any bond investor's worst investment choice ever. So let's let's just first of all make sure we've got this clear. So you're talking about all types of bonds. The first one you talked about is a total bond fund, which has both treasuries and corporate bonds. But you said, no, wait, what if we just do intermediate treasuries? We get rid of the corporates and we look at just pure government bonds at an intermediate duration. So we're talking about what, five to 10 years, something like that. And then then you talked about the 30-year. Well, let's just say we just buy a 30-year U.S. Treasury. So it is long duration, but it's government, government, U.S. government. So therefore, there's no credit risk related to businesses or anything like that. And then finally, you talked about perpetuity. In fact, in Thailand, we have now had perpetuity issuances by a couple of companies where basically there is no maturity and therefore no final date, let's say, that the principal's repaid. And therefore, this would be the longest duration type of bond. And then for the listeners out there, the general concept is that when you think that bond prices are going to fall, you want to be in a short duration bond. If you think that bond prices are going to rise, you want to be in a long duration bond because of the volatility of that instrument. So a long duration bond, you don't want to be in when bond prices are falling because they tend to fall more, if I'm correct about that. That's my summary. Any uh, Anything else you would add to that? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a great summary. And I'll, I'll segue into my explanation in just one minute here. And so you're absolutely right. The reason people, you know, kind of put a lot of weight on intermediate treasuries in most, you know, kind of sane, above board, high integrity financial planning is because duration is low. And so even if you have a bad year, theoretically, you're going to lose 2% or 3%, okay, because the duration is short. But 2022 was so bad that the intermediate treasury owner lost 10, 11, 12 percent, okay, at the worst point. Why did that happen? Why did even the... Can I I just ask, uh, so one of the ones you didn't mention was a short-term U.S. treasury, where we know a short-term has less volatility to a downward move or an upward move. Is there a reason why you didn't mention that? Ah, okay. Let's let's go to the ultimate short duration instrument, the Treasury bill, thirty days or ninety days, sold at a discount. The way the discounting mathematics works, after a day or two or three of holding it, you cannot lose money. Okay, mm. because you know you bought it at ninety eight and it's going to mature at a hundred, and every day it goes ninety eight and an eighth, ninety eight and a quarter, and even if interest rates soar that month. Well, you stayed at 98 and a quarter for a couple of days and then it started inching up again because it's due in 90 days. Okay. Now, 
Treasury bill owners did not lose money in 2022. They got the three basis point yield they were promised. Okay, <laughs> they made three dollars for every ten thousand they put in T bills. No <laughs> loss. Okay, so that's the other reason why people end up in intermediate treasuries is that it's the sweet spot for getting some kind of yield without too much risk. With T bills, no risk and sometimes no yield. And and just to highlight, you've just illustrated an important point. The problem, let's say, with a 30-year treasury is that nobody holds them to maturity. They're going to eventually sell them. And the benefit of the treasury bill is that you're forced, basically, that portfolio is holding them to maturity kind of naturally because there's no sense in trading them when you've got them for such a short maturity. And that brings us to another point, which is when we talk about bond losses, we're talking about to market losses or losses if you sold. But let's just say you had a 10-year, let's just say that you bought a 10-year government bond from the US government and you never looked at the quote in the market as what was going on. You lent the government you know, X amount and they promised to pay this amount and return that money at the end of the period. Just for the listeners who don't understand completely about bonds, you would have gotten the promised return but you just, if you had paid attention to the ticker of what's going on or the price of that bond, you would realize, holy crap, I put in 100 and now it's worth, you know, 80 or whatever that is. Am I correct in that, Professor? Absolutely, Andrew, you've got it. You hide your expertise well, my friend. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so to play that back to the listeners, nobody who holds a U.S. Treasury to maturity ever loses any money in nominal terms, okay? Mm -hmm. It's when you trade them before maturity that 2022 serves as a lesson of just how much you can lose in how short a period of time in an instrument that would have been completely safe if you'd held it for the entire 30 years, yeah. okay? So in some ways, uh, a lot of investors, of course, don't buy even treasuries directly. They buy a Vanguard treasury mutual fund, which is continually refreshed with new bonds and old bonds exit out or mature. And so these losses are particularly likely to be found by the mutual fund investor because, you know, they're, they're not holding to maturity. So the question I want to get to, though, before we run out of time is, why was 2022 so bad? Okay. Because let's face it, the consoles went through the Napoleonic Wars. U.S. Treasuries went through government bonds, went through the, the Panic of 1837, the Civil War, the Panic of 1873, 1929, yada, 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 yada. Why was 2022 so bad? Well, the dirty little secret that beginning bond investors are not told is that there's actually two inputs to duration. Hmm. Everybody knows that the shorter the maturity, the shorter the duration, the lower the volatility, the less fluctuation in prices. What they don't tell you in bond 101, you got to make it to bond 201 for this uh, insight, is that the lower the coupon, the higher the duration, okay? And what was the coupon payment on a long treasury at the beginning of 2022? It was like 
one and a half percent, not three percent, not four percent, not six percent. And so basically, there was only one other time in U.S. history that long treasuries got that low. It was just after World War II, the government controlled the prices. But the bond bear market that followed 1946 took about 20 years even to get up to a walking speed. And, you know, eventually it started sprinting and yields galloped up in the 60s and 70s. But the thing that made 2022 so poisonous was the fact that coupons had gotten so low. When you've got a one and a half percent coupon and anything goes south, you know, a mere one percentage point rise in rates, duration is high, the bond price takes it on the chin. And if it goes up two or two and a half points, which is what happened in 2022, you can see a hundred dollar bond worth a government bond worth 78, 82, something like that in one year. And of course, the coupon doesn't defray that loss. So you're, you're one and a half percent better off than price appreciation alone. So the short answer, if anyone listening today has to sit in a bar stool and say, well, why was 2022 so bad for bond investors? Because it started with coupons pressed down to the floor. Mm. So let's let's try to uh, understand this a little bit. So when we talk about maturity, it's easy to understand like a big payment being paid 20, 30 years away. But when we talk about coupon, it's a little bit harder to visualize the duration issue because coupon basically means they're going to be paying you that flat amount over the period of time. Now, let me ask you, was it a duration issue or was it a kind of percentage increase so that you start at a very low level of interest rate and interest payment? And then from a percentage increase, it's just like, wow, it's just crazy amount of increase. You know, that's an interesting take. I think, you know, mathematically, they're probably just two sides of the coin. But mm. the way you put it may be more accessible to our listener base. So, for instance, basically, long governments went from a coupon of 1.5 to a coupon of four. So that's up two and a half. Mm. And that impact is expressible in terms of duration. But another way to look at it is, let's see, 250 divided by 150, that's 166% increase in coupon over the space of less than one year. Whereas I've told several journalists, I don't know if bonds will have a positive return in 2023 or not, but I know that they started at 4%. And even if they coupon goes up another 2.5% this year, to something that nobody expects, six and a half percent. Well, that's 2.5 divided by four, and that's only uh, 62% rise, not 166% rise. So you can certainly look at it that way. If you're a bond investor and you see a coupon on a long bond that's way down there on the floor, you got to be prepared for this to be the worst bond investment you ever made. Yeah. Wow. And there's a couple of other points that I wanted to make about this because it's something that happened in the 2008 mortgage crisis because typically mortgage loans for homes don't have a lot of risk of default. And even if they do default, the underlying collateral of the house 
prevents that loan from being, you know, from typically falling from, let's just say the the value that the company, that the bank has is 100, that's not going to go down to 10. It's not going to fall by 90% in value because you have an underlying asset there. So if we looked at the portfolio of mortgage loans, just as, as a whole, we would see that, you know, it's not like a corporate loan where there's a potential that that business could go bust. So maybe you could say that the fall in value during the 2008 crisis of these types of loans could have been 20%, maybe 30%, but there's ultimately an underlying collateral there. However, what happened was we had instruments that had an accumulation of many of these, and then the instrument was quoted in the market. And this type of mortgage-backed security was quoted in the market. And when the market basically collapsed, the price of that fund that owned all of those could fall by 90%. And all of a sudden, banks were forced to market a 90% loss on a portfolio that would probably only have a 20% loss over the long term. And so that's where instruments are interesting as opposed to, you know, if a bank owned that, those loans themselves. And I'm just thinking about when you're investing in a bond fund, you're naturally going to be investing in something that is priced. There's the price of the fund and they're going to have to, you know, mark to market. Whereas as an individual, you don't have to do that if you were to own a particular bond. So that's a, a round, round away thing, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, it's interesting to look back to the 2007-9 crisis, since that's when that put trade went south for me. But, you know, I think there were two things, and we're going we're gonna to wander off into the swamp of complexity pretty quickly. So when you raise your finger, I'm going to stop, okay? okay? There were two things going on that I'll add to the story you told. The first was this notion that the mortgage is backed by collateral, of course, assumes honesty and diligent underwriting. So, you know, does that house actually exist at that address or is mm. it simply an empty lot? Okay. You know, some of the loans then, uh, not sure if this phrase made it into the accounts you see over in uh, Thailand, but they were called liars loans. Okay. Because there was no documentation. Mm. And, you know, basically economists say, if a good is free, it will be wasted. If you don't have to document your mortgage application, you will cheat. Okay. And so the first problem was people thought they were buying mortgages in the 1970s, 1980s sense where banks, mm. you know, you want to borrow money from us? Let me see your three-piece suit. Let me yep. see 10 years of uh, income tax forms. Maybe we'll give you a loan to the uh, louche days of the early 2000s post-Michael Milken where liar loans proliferated mm. because the banks made a fee for passing on the trash to someone else. The people that uh, got the trash bundled it up. And then the second element was those instruments that you referred to. It would be one thing if they were simply, you know, a thousand mortgages spread across the country, same as a bond fund has a thousand different corporate bonds spread across the economy. But in fact, of course, what they did was they took, you know, the thousand mortgages and through financial alchemy, they split it into six funds, okay? And the safe tranche, as they called them, 
would continue to pay its interest mm. as long as the mortgage did not fall by 50% or more. Mm. Okay. And the banks that own those instruments did okay. But way up at the top, you know, were the hedge funds, you know, kind of appetizers where if the mortgage skipped a single payment, you know, the value of that tranche would fall by 50%. Right. Okay. And it's those tranches that turned into toxic waste to end really almost brought down the financial system. Mm. And this type of thing generally doesn't happen in Thailand, in Asia, and in most other countries in the world. And the reason why is we don't have a secondary market for mortgages, for home mortgages. And we definitely don't have a secondary market in, market in home mortgages that's supported by government policy. And Unfortunately, in America, I would say Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have a giant sucking sound, as someone said many years ago, and they're sucking as many mortgages as they can get under government mandate to hold mortgages at that time of lower and lower quality. So there was a government policy that was able to be backdoored through these quasi-government entities without the taxpayer seeing the obvious loss that was coming. And eventually that loss was felt at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and of course around the world. And so as long as the originating banks know that they have a guaranteed buyer, as long as they go within the limits of what they were requiring, and those limits were getting looser and looser, then they knew that you know they can get rid of these things. Whereas in Thailand, as an example, every mortgage loan that a bank in Thailand is given is, is going to be on their books until it's repaid. Which uh, concentrates the mind of the banker making the loan. And uh, of course, the other thing too is that my understanding is the United States is the only place where you can buy a 30-year a fixed mortgage. The rest of the world Correct. says, who wants to take a risk for 30 years? Correct. Here's and your five-year can... adjustable. That can only be done by having a secondary market. And I would argue that what the solution in America, and it should have been done after 2008, is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac should have been privatized. Nothing wrong with having a secondary market, but you need it to be done at market prices. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac could go out and raise long-term money, 30-year money, at a reasonable market rate, and then use that money to buy long-term fixed you know, 30-year mortgages. But of course, that'll never happen. So- Watch out for backdoor when governments backdoor their spending ideas. That's my lesson from that. We N none dare call it moral hazard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we have such good morals, so why would we even call it that, anyways? I, What's I the just, hazard? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I really want to uh, thank you for sharing, you know, your story and also your experience and knowledge in this, you know, area. And I'm going to wrap up the show by asking you a personal question. It could be personal, could be professional, but what is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, listeners should understand that I retired six years ago. And actually, my retirement didn't work out. I was a complete failure at it. Okay. <laughs> uh, but giving up the paycheck, I was able to do that. Giving up the faculty meetings, that was easy. Okay. Giving up the grading was easier yet. But the part that I found unable to give up was the writing, okay? And so my number one goal for the following year, Andrew, is the same as it was last year, 
which is to write as much good stuff as I can pump out the door. <laughs> Exciting. And the world is better for it. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss and a great discussion to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my weekly free Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Edward, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience, Professor? Own the total stock market, just like Andrew said. Boom. And that's, <laughs> and let me ask you, can I add one ask question? Should we also own the total bond market and mix that? Or based upon your experience, should we just own the total stock market? It, of course, you know, the answer here, it depends on how much risk you want to assume. And I, I have a whole thread at Bogleheads right now. It's called, just look for the one by McHugh, diversification a la Markowitz, you'll find it. And the answer to your question is that I find intermediate treasuries to be superior to total bond if you're the stock investor who got a little older, hands are starting to shake a little bit, fear is starting to mount up to match greed, okay? Because, you know, there's always that balance. Yep. And only if you are willing to give up on maximum wealth gain as far as it goes, only then should you own any kind of bond. Mm -hmm. But when you get to that point, intermediate treasuries. Fantastic. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.